available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. From Community Broadcasting Services, the talking newspaper for Coventry, this is Outlook. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Stella Roberts and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 16th of November 2022. Coming up we have an article about the Flying Standard Building, read by Margaret. Bill introduces us to Agatha Christie, Sheila is talking about cheese and Sue about gardener and novelist Alan Titchmarsh. We also look at the serious business of dunking with Nigel and Dave concludes his interview with Karen Bucknell of beauty pageant fame. We also have our usual features, news from the Resource Centre, sport and postbag. But first, Elaine and I review the past week's local news. Outlook News. More than 300 Ukrainian refugees now live in Coventry, with more set to arrive by the new year. A total of 231 people fleeing the conflict have found sanctuary in 116 properties in the city under the government's Homes for Ukraine scheme. Earlston, Lower Stoke and Woberley were the top three areas where people had taken in refugees from Ukraine. Generous residents are still offering homes and 82 more people are expected to move to the city before the end of December. Separately, the Council are aware of at least 107 refugees who have joined their relatives in the city via the Ukraine Family Scheme. As this scheme isn't dealt with directly by the Council, this number comes from local networks and could be higher. The figures were discussed at a Council Scrutiny Board meeting last week. Coventry's welcome to new arrivals was praised by the city branch of the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain. A representative from the group said, From day one we have felt completely reassured that Coventry would be able to handle this well. Around the country we promote Coventry, not as better practice, but as best practice, they added. Council officers likewise praised the city's Ukrainian community, as vital to helping refugees integrate. In a report before the meeting, Head of Libraries and Migration Peter Barnett said, The Association of Ukrainians Great Britain has a community centre in Coventry and a vibrant community. There is also an active Ukrainian Catholic Church, which has been very supportive. Together, these organisations have supported the newly arrived guests from Ukraine by offering pastoral support, weekly coffee mornings with events such as outings, and speakers have supported us as a local authority extremely well. The Council's Housing and Communities boss, David Welsh, said, I am really proud of our response in Coventry. I'd like to thank people. It really is changing lives, supporting people when they need it most. The British Motor Museum in Coventry has been awarded an extra £225,000 per year from Arts Council England between 2023 and 2026. The museum is one of 990 National Portfolio and Investment Principles support organisations which will share 
the £446 million a year investment. The funding will supply activities and development work at the museum through exhibitions and programmes. The themes the museum will explore include the development of alternative solutions for the car and mobility, the process of design and the personal responses it evokes, and the relationship between cars and music, both of which are deeply rooted in popular culture. The museum is also committed to diversifying its audience, workforce and governance. Jeff Coop, the British Motor Museum's managing director, said, We are delighted to receive this investment from Arts Council England, which will help to ensure the resilience of the museum in the future and also cement our reputation as one of the outstanding museums in the region. Our programmes are strongly grounded in working with a wide variety of communities and giving as many people as possible the opportunity to engage with the museum's amazing collections and culture. A major decision is being made over the future of a beloved Coventry sports stadium. Rugby Borough Council's planning committee is discussing proposals to turn Coventry Stadium on Rugby Road Brandon into a housing estate. Plans to build 124 new homes on the derelict site are going before councillors and they've been recommended for approval. Documents put before the committee state that more than 15 letters of objection have been received. The site has formerly been used for stock car, speedway and greyhound racing. It suffered a devastating blaze earlier this year. It was hoped that the Coventry Bees would be able to return to the track for one night only last March, but the event had to be cancelled because of the weather. One former Speedway rider said the proposals were incredibly sad. Francesca Wright said her family had been going to Brandon for three generations. She said, to lose a track that I remember going to as a kid, my dad remembers going to as a kid, and now being pregnant myself, and knowing I'm not going to be able to have that experience with my own child. Documents put before the committee state that the proposal is for outline planning consent and includes 34 two-bedroom homes, 65 three-bedroom and 25 four-bedroom. There will be 20% affordable housing and provision for a 3G football pitch and pavilion. The proposed development also includes the creation of green open spaces and a large area of open space to the north of the site adjoining the existing woodland. Confusion and relief were among the reactions to news that a major housing development in Coventry has been refused permission for a second time. Flats providing 690 homes for the city were set to be built on an old gasworks site at Abbots Lane in Cowden, despite objections from residents. But in a shock twist, Coventry City Councillors voted last week to reject the scheme because the application had too many red flags. Some welcomed it, but others are simply baffled. Coventry North West MP Taiwo Owatemi has been vocal in her opposition before the planning committee's vote. In a letter to the council, the Labour MP described it as a serious overdevelopment 
and pointed out that the land had been allocated for just 100 homes in the local plan. Following the meeting, she said she was pleased councillors had voted to reject the proposals. She added, I absolutely support development on brownfield sites in Coventry and would welcome an appropriate scale of development at the old gas works on Abbots Lane. But the proposals put forward are simply not viable and it's right that they were turned down by the planning committee. Complex Development Projects, PDP, CDP, acquired the land in 2017, but their first plans to build 731 homes were rejected by Coventry councillors last year. Planning consultant Catherine Ventnum said after the meeting she was totally bewildered by the decision to reject. We've spent almost two years designing a new scheme following the previous refusal, she said. We've worked hand-in-hand with council officers to provide the scheme that they wanted for the city, from height and density, even down to the detail of the brick patterns. We also included design measures such as obscured windows to prevent overlooking and protect neighbours' residents' privacy at their request. Comte City Councillors for Sherbourne Ward, which includes Abbots Lane, were split on the plans. Labour councillor Gavin Lloyd sponsored two petitions against the scheme and spoke against it at last week's planning committee. None I spoke to is against the site being developed, but valid concerns about the concentration were highlighted by many. All expressed to me the same message, development needed, just not that big. My concern sat alongside this but also that the housing mix and socially available homes fell short of Coventry's standards. Coventry North West MP Muzza Watamai challenged Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on the extortionate parking charges for NHS staff at University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire. Muzawatamai, a former NHS senior oncology pharmacist, said parking charges cost a full-time UHCW staff member £600 a year, adding the fees were hammering people in Coventry while they were already facing a cost-of-living crisis. Car parking was made free for all NHS staff during the pandemic, but the Department for Health and Social Care decided to end this measure at the start of the year. When quizzed about the parking charges in Parliament, Mr Sunak pointed to this pandemic policy and the fact parking was still free for workers on night shifts. Mr Watamai said, After two years of a pandemic, we owe our National Health Service workers a huge debt. Thanks to their extraordinary efforts, they saved thousands of lives, despite short staffing and severe personal risk. I have written four times to different health secretaries, asking them to take action regarding the extortionate parking charges for staff in Coventry, but I have been repeatedly ignored. This charge is simply unacceptable. It makes no sense that whilst parking is free for staff who work night shifts, other staff still have to fork out. Mr Watamai has launched a petition causing on Health Secretary Steve Barclay to scrap the charges. 
a spokesperson for U- University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire National Health Service Trust said, A large proportion of our car parks form part of a private finance initiative contract, and as a result, we generate minimal car park revenue directly from staff, patients or visitors. We work very closely with our PFI partner to minimise the impact of charges by providing a subsidy. As per national guidance, free parking is available for staff who are blue badge holders or those who work night shifts. Any further subsidies would take money from budgets used for patient care. Money generated from parking fees goes towards essential running costs of the car parks and surrounding areas, including maintenance, security, lighting, improvements and increased capacity. A Coventry care home is in the running for a national award after its staff were named the best in the West Midlands. Hard-working staff at Godiva Lodge in Heath Crescent, Upper Stoke, won West Midlands Care Home Team of the Year at the Great British Care Awards 2022 Regional Final in Birmingham last weekend. Godiva Lodge, managed by Anchor, will now go on to represent Coventry and the region at the National Finals in March. Home manager Kiara Monaghan said, This is a wonderful achievement for us. I'm so proud of everyone in my team. I don't really think it's sunk in yet. It was a huge achievement just to be nominated, but I'm so happy we've been named the best care home team. Full credit goes to my team. They're all brilliant and really do live up to Anchor's principles of accountability, respect, courage and honesty. All I can say now is roll on the national finals in March. I hope we do anchor Godiva Lodge proud and bring back the national award. The awards recognise excellence across the care sector and pay tribute to individuals who have gone the extra mile to help improve the lives of residents within their care. Judges concluded that the team at Godiva Lodge had demonstrated clear vision, passion and dedication to the people in their care and their families and worked well with their colleagues. Residents are furious about dangerous HGV lorries driving along Pitford Green Lane in Coventry following a crash involving a lorry. Locals have raised concerns about HGV drivers using the narrow country lane despite road signs warning it is unsuitable for this type of vehicle. There have been reports of lorries passing through the lane regularly, transporting materials for construction works, as several housing development projects take place in the area. I live on Pickford Green Lane, which joins on to Hockley Lane. We have been having problems with HGVs using the lane as a cut-through for a few years, even though it's signposted as unsuitable for HGVs. I have been in contact with Highways Department, who have been promising to do something for the last year or so. They also said that construction traffic from a nearby development wouldn't be allowed to use the lanes. Last week, a large eight-wheel wagon full of building materials overturned along the lane, causing it to be closed for a number of hours. 
Other residents have also voiced concerns about the safety of motorists and pedestrians in the area. Those living in the area say Pickford Green Lane is an accident waiting to happen. The levels of traffic have also increased. This is going to affect a lot of residents and safety is not being looked at. It's a small road. Lots of people walk along it as there is no pavement. A Coventry businessman has been fined thousands after he was caught dumping a van load of rubbish in the Midlands. Jan Tokar was hired to clean a home in Warsaw, but instead dumped the unwanted waste in Shrubland. Tokar, 46, was caught red-handed after he was captured on CCTV, unloading a black van and chucking the items on the ground. Investigators managed to track down the convict after discovering the vehicle was registered to his business, JT Fast Cleaning Limited, of Wickham Close, Coventry. A customer had hired Takar to clear household waste and deep clean a property belonging to his father on August 22, 2019. Five days later, a large amount of household waste was discovered at the roadside in Crook Lane, Great Bar. Footage captured Takar pulling the items out of a black Vauxhall van and discarding them in the street. Several documents containing the name and address of the witness's father were found in the rubbish. Investigations found that the CCTV recording was dated August 24th, while DVLA records identified the Comtree-based firm as the registered keeper of the van. Dakar agreed he had been caught on the CCTV footage and confessed to fly-tipping when he was interviewed on November 12th. Sentencing District Judge Wheeler fined Takar £6,667. He was also ordered to pay £828 costs and a £181 victim surcharge. Councillor Gary Perry, Deputy Leader for Resilient Communities at Warsaw Council, said this is an excellent result that sends out a very strong message to others who think it's acceptable to blight our streets rather than legally dispose of their waste. A Coventry pub is facing a review of its licensing conditions following a number of noise complaints. Coventry City Council is pondering future operations at the pilot in Catsby Road, Holbrooks. The Council's environmental protection team is seeking a change to the pub's licensing hours. The proposed changes would see no alcohol served at the premises after 10pm and the removal of music at the venue. The application is requesting the removal of live and recorded music and the reinstatement of a licence condition. Under that rule, the only consumption of alcohol to be permitted outside is in a designated area on Catsby Road at the front of the premises. The Environmental Protection Section has received a number of noise complaints from local residents over a period of time, which have been witnessed by officers from the Environmental Services team, the application says. Despite attempts by officers to provide advice and guidance to the management of the pilot, complaints have persisted, which has resulted in the service of a noise abatement notice. 
This has had a detrimental effect on the quality of life of local residents, thereby undermining the licensing objective of the prevention of public nuisance. Footballer James Madison's meteoric rise to stardom and place in the Indian squad at the World Cup in Qatar will inspire kids at his former school in Coventry. That's the expert view of James' former PE teacher and close friend, Steve Frankish, who says it was evident from day one that the future Leicester City star was destined for greatness. Steve, who still works at Caledon Castle School in Wiking, first clapped eyes on James as a pint-sized but cocky year eight pupil. I remember watching him play for the first time, Steve said. Straight away, you just knew he was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was really small, and everyone would ask, who's the little lad in the middle? I remember he played in central midfield in a cup final. We won 5-4, and he scored all five. He was always so confident, assured in his own ability, and so driven. It was always evident he was going to be a really talented kid. A lot of kids his age, involved with professional academies as James was, were not allowed to play for their school teams. But James always wanted to play for us. He just loved to play and had great enthusiasm for the game. Madison, now 25, joined Coventry City's academy as a youngster, but a successful career as a footballer, let alone an ascent to the England team and a World Cup, was by no means guaranteed. The youngster would have to overcome concerns about his height and diminutive frame, as well as all the odds to make it in the game. He was once told by a teacher at Caledon Castle that only one in a million make it as a footballer. James replied, I told him I am that one. Steve, head of year 10 at Caledon Castle, counts James as a good friend and regularly hooks up with him for games of golf in the summer. He's just a really good kid and always has been, Steve added. At school he was a real cheeky chappy. We had great banter with him and his mates. James told Steve via text how he was buzzing to have made the England squad for a competition often labelled the greatest show on earth. But James is not the only Coventry kid flying the sky blue flag in Gareth Southgate's pick of 26. Newcastle United forward Callum Wilson also made the manager's final cut. Wilson, 30, attended President Kennedy School in Holbrooks and also came up through the ranks at Coventry City. Coventry Cathedral held a series of poignant remembrance services and events to mark both Remembrance Sunday and the 82nd anniversary of the day the original building was bombed in the Blitz. The Cathedral Church of St Michael was reduced to ruins on November 14th, 1940, becoming the only British cathedral to be destroyed in the war. The raid lasted 11 hours and destroyed 43,000 homes within the city, with the official death toll from the night being 554. Although with many people unaccounted for, it is likely the figure was higher. The cathedral ruins are now considered a symbol of peace, hope and reconciliation across the world. This year is of extra significance as the new cathedral, built directly opposite the ruins, is celebrating its diamond jubilee. 
The Blitz Museum, located within the ruins, held a special opening over the weekend with children's activities, and on Saturday evening the Coventry Cathedral Chorus held a concert of remembrance. Remembrance Sunday was marked by a special service within the ruins, followed by a choral evensong in the afternoon. And the day ended with a screening of War Requiem, followed by a talk and discussion with the film's producer, Don Boyd. Catherine Fleming, Canon for Worship and Community, said, Remembering all those who have died in war, and doing so in a place that bears such visible scars, is a powerful reminder of all the loss that war entails, and an encouragement to commit once again to live as people of peace in our city of reconciliation. We give thanks as ever to those before us who chose a path of peace and reconciliation and are proud to stand for these values today. Outlook News Thanks there to Elaine, my fellow newsreader. We've got one or two notices. Um, just an apology about the website, which is now back working. 99% it says today. The company that hosts our website has, had moved to a new location, so we had to tweak things to get it working properly following the move over the last few days. But it should be fine now. There's uh, news of a charity concert in Age of the Guide Dogs. The Star Singers are appearing at Kenilworth Sports and Social Club, Montague House, Upper Rosemary Hill, at CV8 2PA. It's on the 10th of December and admission is £5 on the door. It says 60s, 70s and 80s country and Irish music live. What time? Doesn't say. <laughs> it's going to be about 7 or 7.30. Be there for 7. Get a drink beforehand. You reckon? Yeah. We'll have to find that out for you folks yeah. for next time. Keep listening. Lighting up times this week. Well, it's getting dark about 4.15 in the afternoon. And it's daylight in the morning by around half past 7. We've got Hugh in the studio and he's here with news from the Resource Centre. Yes, thank you. Hello everybody. The Star Singers, that's, um, that's uh, Hayley uh, who is going to be, uh, who was part of the uh, music group here uh, for the longest time. So that's, uh, so that's her. Well, can you tell her her poster hasn't got a time Yes, on. I will do. I'll, 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 she's probably listening now. Hayley, your, your poster doesn't have a time on it. So will you will can there let be any know. dogs there? Uh, yes, I should imagine there will be. Right, well, hello, everybody. Gosh, it's Wednesday already, and, uh, well, I'm having a bit of a day of it, to be honest. Guy, alas, has tested positive for COVID, uh, so we'll look forward to him being back as soon as possible. And the big bus is having a little trip to the garage, and that's only a smidge of what's gone on today, to be perfectly honest. So, rapid, I think. 
Thank you to everyone who has donated for the raffle and tombola for the winter warmer on Saturday the 3rd of, se- of December. It's progressing nicely. We'll be grateful for yet smaller, uh, yet more smaller items like uh, bottles and toiletries, sweet treats and whatnot. Um, the day itself will see Boston Lodge full of stalls, uh, the cafe in full swing offering pork batches, scones, soup, cakes, Bailey's coffee and mulled wine. And of course the charity shop will be open. If you haven't been into the charity shop later, uh, lately, you really should. June the shop and her team have made it a whole lot bigger by expanding further into the back room. There's a lot more room for menswear, more for more kids stuff and bric-a-brac. It's more airy and light and the bargains are amazing. You know, I picked up a great pair of new Northampton made shoes yesterday, just my size, for 15 quid. Oh, you know? lovely. And I was yes. just showing them to Elaine there. <laughs> I'm that chuffed with them. So um, pop in uh, soon or make sure you do on Winter Warmer Day. They'll be out in the car park as well. Christmas cards are back in stock. Uh, they're £3.50 for eight cards. We've got four designs. Uh, so every pack goes to support the resource centre. So please consider us for all your Christmas card needs. Now, uh, there is another show coming up at the Criterion. Um, I'm thinking of arranging a group to go either on Tuesday the 13th or Wednesday the 14th of December. It's the usual process. Let Heather know which date you'd prefer. It will only be one of them. Um, I'll try to arrange a touch tour for 5pm and then we'll be back up here for Fish and Chips, then down to the theatre for the show at 7.30. Tickets are £12.50. Um, the bus is the usual £6 return or £3.50 one way if you're already here and fish and chips whatever they come in at but you didn't say what the show is you'll be wanting to know what the show is (laughs) which was my next line she's anticipated me Um, it's Alice by Laura Wade which is a modern retelling of Alice in Wonderland the white rabbit is late for the duchess the cheshire cat won't stop grinning and the hatter is well mad in the middle of it all is alice a young girl with a vivid imagination and a family life that's less than perfect in this new adaptation by the renowned playwright and sheffield native laura wade you can follow alice as she escapes her bedroom to find adventure in a topsy-turvy world Based on Lewis Carroll's classic tale, Wade's adaptation breathes fresh life into a much-loved story about rabbit holes, pocket watches and talking caterpillars. The production at the Criterion involves a mixed-age cast, and I can tell you it's very mixed, going from the very young to the the, the not-so-very-young, including a number of roles being undertaken by members of the drama classes. So it's going to be a really properly good um, family sort of production not something nice for christmas are you in it Hugh? i am not in it nothing no definitely not it. nothing having a one-off uh, well I'm, ha- I'm having quite a few off to be <laughs> right. honest. anyway okay. uh, the, uh, the reviews of the play have described it as fast moving amusing amusing inventive and visually delightful uh, and somebody else said wade's contemporary stage on a victorian classic is a genuine treat for the whole family so if you fancy something uh, bright and cheerful just to get you in the mood for the Christmas season, mm. which uh, sounds really good. It sounds like mm-hmm. a bit of fun, doesn't it? Mm. Um, just to remind you of the Christmas season, uh, the centre will be closing on the 23rd of uh, December, which is the Friday. Uh, uh, we'll be closed all of Christmas week, and we will not reopen again then till the second. Oh no, it might even be the. 3rd of January, I've said this last week, the 3rd of January, which is the Tuesday, because uh, the 1st falls on a Sunday, so the bank holiday is then on the Monday. So we're going on the Tuesday, the 3rd. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hugh. And now it's over to Sarah with this week's sport. 
Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. It's Silly Sarah with Sport again. Right, I'm going to start off, as usual, with a roundup of your local results. So, Tuesday before last, remember I pre-recorded on Monday last time, Coventry City entertained Wigan in what was a very potential banana skin. We are very good at losing to teams well below us. Nil-nil at half-time and things were getting nervy. But there was a huge sigh of relief in the 77th minute when Gustavo Hamer put the ball in the net. Well done. But then in the 90th minute plus five, that is the fifth minute of injury time, it was hoofed up to about halfway and picked up by Victor Jokeres, who dodged a couple of defenders and ran half the length of the pitch and neatly netted. City 2-0. Cue the CWR reporter to say, just think of the sales money we can get for him now. We won't just be able to buy the stadium. We'll be able to put a roof on it and call it the Victor Dome. Well, actually, I don't want him to go in the January window because I don't know what's going to happen then. Anyway, back to normal on Saturday. Comfrey City entertained opposition who are higher than us. Queen's Park Rangers. But again, 2-0 City. And that pesky Swede, yes, Victor Jokeres was on the score sheet. Now, that means that Coventry City have got the best defensive record in the championship. We haven't conceded a goal for over six hours of play and it's the first time for over 20 years that City have won four consecutive league games at this level or or above. However, now football, well, Premiership and Championship football packs up its suitcase and shuts down till Boxing Day. Yes, I know, Boxing Day! Because there's something apparently happening in Qatar. I don't know. Anyway, it'll all come out in the wash and I'm sure we will, I will be reporting on it. So, go into your non-premier teams. And I'm sorry that I haven't been covering Bedworth. I must make a point of it another time. Leamington hosted Chester and drew 1-1. Nuneaton hosted... Wilkiston Town, Ilkiston Town, sorry, and ran out 2-0 winners. Now, most of our Midlands United Premier teams were playing in the FA Trophy. You know, the one that looks up to the FA Vars and says, I'm not worthy. 
and then the vase in turn looks up to the FA Cup. But we've got to start somewhere. Sadly, Rugby, T Rugby Town lost to AFC Wolfrunians. No, I haven't a clue either. By one goal to two. I can't update you on AFC Warwick because they haven't updated their Facebook site yet. Congleton beat Coventry United 2-1. But saving the day for the local teams was Coventry Sphinx who travelled to Eccleshaw and ran out 1-3 winners. Now on the international scene. You'll remember last week I was very jubilant about how the English team were doing in all sports known to mankind or so it seemed. Well, <clears throat> a lot happens in a week. The good news is that England wheelchair rugby league team beat Wales 125 points to 22 in the semi-finals of the World Cup and will now face France. Now this match is on Friday at half past 7 p.m. because it's British time. But will the Red Roses, you know, the English women's rugby union team, they nearly won. I would like to say I watched it live, but I actually recorded it and watched it about three hours later. I'm afraid getting up at half six on a Saturday morning ain't on my agenda. It was all going so well until one of our players in about the 15th minute got a red card, which meant that she was sent off the pitch for the rest of the match. Anyway, the final score was England 31, New Zealand 34. Well, considering New Zealand are one of the best teams in the world, in fact, probably with England, they are the best two teams, to only lose by three points when you've played most of the match with one less player than the opposition ain't too bad but it ain't no silverware or winner's medal either. Just as a footnote, you may be aware that before all New Zealand rugby matches, they perform the haka, which is a kind of tribal ritual war dance. Now, I am more used to it being done by men's teams with their deep voices and low-sounding notes, which you can cope with in a war dance, but it doesn't sound weird when you've got a group of 15 women, all of whom seem to have as squeaky voices as I've got, and the hacker was pitched really high. Anyway, on with the rugby league. The World Cup continues in England but not sadly for England. In the women's, England in the semi-final came up against New Zealand again and lost 20 points to six. 
Now I was in a meeting and when the meeting had finished, I switched on and it was 8-6 and I thought, come on England, you can do it, only two points. But I have to say, New Zealand were superb in that second half, running in try after try after try and they well deserved it. Meanwhile, in the men's, England lost it by the golden point. That is, it was 26-26 against Samoa at final whistle. And they play until one of the teams scores a point. You can do it anyhow, but it needs to just be a point. So it could be a try, whatever. But this was a drop goal, a superb drop goal by one of the Samoans. So that was England out as well. Also reaching the semi-final, but I understand this was rather good and totally unexpected, were the women tennis players in the Billie Jean King Cup. They were defeated in the semis by Australia 2-1. But the final match, which was the doubles, every set went to a tiebreaker. So that is pretty good. And also on the way to the semis, they'd had a 3-0 victory over Spain, which was even better. And remember, they haven't, they're playing without Emma Raducanu at the moment because she's suffering from a, an injured wrist. But well done particularly to Harriet Dart, who won all of her matches, and also to Heather Watson. Oh, hang on. Oh, gosh, yeah, I better mention this. I have a confession. I watched the men in their silly pyjamas and they won. Actually, their pyjamas are rather nice and I would like a pair. Bright red tops and medium blue trousers. And like football players, they have their squad number and name on the back of the shirt. I suppose it's in case they forget it. Anyway... Moving on, as you must have heard on the news, England won the T20 World Cup, which was played in Australia, but Australia weren't even in the final. England played Pakistan and won. Now, apparently they also hold the 50 overs World Cup, which means they are king of the white ball, close quotes. Makes a change from king of the jungle, but never mind, lads, that opportunity will come when the money's run out in a few years. Now, England were helped by Pakistan having one of their bowlers injured and having to go off the pitch. And it was really tight as roughly the same time, at about half-time, with Pakistan having scored, they batted first, 86 for four, and in comparison, England were 84 for four. 
But cue Ben Stokes to, to stand up. He kept his head when all those around him were losing theirs and had the pleasure of hitting the final winning run. He also scored 52 himself. But actually the winning run was quite funny because the referees weren't even sure that it was run. But anyway, England won by five wickets and over and over. Look, better get my teeth in next time I say that. Over and over. Well, you know what I mean. Right, just a couple of quick PSs. Firstly, again, you must have heard this on the local news. When the England squad for the World Cup, which starts on Sunday, was announced, local Coventry lads who were brought up in the Coventry City Academy were named Callum Wilson, who now plays for Premier Club Newcastle, and James Madison, who now plays for Premier Club Leicester. Well done, lads. And finally, 30 years after first winning it, Jimmy White, now aged 60, has qualified for the UK Snooker Championship. There's hope for us all yet. And that was your sport. Thank you very much, Sarah. And now let's see what Dave has in your post bag. This is post bag. Join in the discussion. Hello there and welcome to your post bag. I'm recording this on the day after Sheila was taken into hospital last night. So thank you for caring and supporting me with a full post bag because that helps make it easier for me to compile and shorter so I can concentrate on other things on what the day brings. Thank you. So we begin your post break this week with reports from Mark Howell and his friend Amy about the concert at the Earlston Village by Visibly Sound and the Creative Writing Group. Mark's report is entitled Charity Butts Rock Concert. Friday 4th of November at 7.30pm, Visibly Sound started off with Mamma Mia, then the Blue Coat Song, then Amy's Song, the last one was Country Roads. Then it was a 10 minutes break, then it was poetry, and another 10 minutes break so that we could have a toilet stop. Then Visibly Sound came back to sing another four songs, then we had another ten minutes to do the raffle. Then it was Chris and Claire singing. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. And here's Amy Clennell's report on the November Nights concert in aid of the Resource Centre. I took part in the November Nights show and it was a good night around. It was a full house. And it was a variety show, really, lots, lots of 
poetry, lots of songs from Misery Sounds, and Chris and Claire did a couple on their own at the end. I did This Is Me, Helped Along by Visibly Sound. Uh, this is me from from the Gracious Showman. And I also recited a couple of my poems from my book, The Nation. I did a book signing at Southam Book Festival. I sold 13 books which was really good for me. It wasn't just a book signing. It gave me the opportunity to do my first live Q&A. And I'm not going to lie, I was nervous because it was my first ever live Q&A. And yeah, question and answer, yeah. Not so much about reciting my, my poems, uh, but it was more, I was nervous about uh, what questions the audience were, were going to ask me, but in the end, they didn't ask me anything that I couldn't answer, so so that was a relief. They asked me what, what inspired me as an author, and had, and did I have a favourite poet as a child? And my answer to that was, I don't think I did have a favourite poet as a child, but it was more um, being inspired by certain short stories that stayed with me, resonated the word. I think if something resonates with you... Yeah, like fairy tales. Yeah. Cinderella. Yes, Cinderella is an example, yes. Thanks to Mark and Amy. We'll hear more from Mark next week. And in the meantime, Graham Whale likes to stop in and listen to the radio. He tells you about a favourite music programme he listens to. Well, if it helps to fill Dave's post back, uh, let me just say a few words about one of my favourite programmes on the radio at the moment. It's a program that goes out on a Friday evening, which is a night I go out sometimes, so I miss them, <laughs> at 7.15, following the Archers. And it's a program called Add to Playlist. It's a music program. It's presented by Gareth Matthews and a bloke called Jeffrey something, and I can't catch his second name. They have three guests on every week, musical involved with music. And the idea is that each of them chooses a piece of music and linked to the previous one. And it's quite a fascinating program to listen to. It crosses a wide range of musical genres. Uh, there is a debate as whether it's a program that should go out on Radio 4, but I can't see where else it would fit. I think you have to be a music connoisseur to enjoy it, to be honest, and you do. it does help if you know something about the theory of music. I suspect by the time you hear this, the series would have come to an end, but um, it is a popular program, so it will be back, I think. The program, as I said before, is called Add to Playlist, and it's at 7.15 on a Friday evening on BBC Radio 4. Thank you, Graham, for your help in filling postbag. 
and for John Vale. With this first part of his recent adventures, like Graham, he left a message on the postbag answer phone by ringing 024-76717-522 and pressing 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. Here's John. Hello, good morning. This is John Vale. It's an item for postbag. Um, I've had uh, quite an eventful last three months, and I'm going to tell you about it in three installments. The first journey was to Heartbeat Country in Yorkshire when we uh, travelled on the train, the steam train, to Avonsfield and then had a good look around the, the city, the town. We met with Jean Award, the lady who was behind the bar, and also David, and I managed to get photos of them with me. The interesting one was Scripps Garage, which I understand from the man who runs it, has been owned by him for 50-odd years, and only came into its own when Heartbeat came into the town. There were many cars there, including the police car, and uh, the... Uh, Various activities that were going on was really great. It's a really oldie-worldie town, anyhow. Just as a funny aside, I went to the graveyard and was quite surprised that I couldn't find the graves of the people who died there, um, that uh, were, were, were buried there, and of course then realised that this, this was purely fictional. But there you are just shows you when you get old you do stupid things don't you well I had a wonderful time I bought some lovely uh, gifts from my grandchildren from the craft fair um, some lovely uh, beautiful cardigans that she'd knitted and uh, we had a lovely afternoon there went into the Adensfield Arms and had my dinner and uh, completely different to what it looks on the television because obviously the inside is done at the, uh, the studio, and so therefore it's nothing like what it is inside, like what we see on the television. But it was good news, it was good fun, and uh, the, the, the important, the, my, one of the things that impressed me most of all were the sheep that were just walking down the road, and one of the, uh, one of the bus stops have a gate on it, to stop the sheep going into the into the into the um, bus stop uh, because obviously they drop their doodars and uh, uh, they're just not very nice. So uh, uh, that was an interesting two days we spent up there. Uh, went to Whitby. We stayed at Whitby, and I had the pleasure of seeing many of the places that Heartbeat uh, was actually working on including the pier, where a number of people had tried to commit suicide and were stopped by the police. It was a very interesting uh, afternoon. Whitby is also the home of Count Dracula, or at least is where the Dracula stories come from, and we went to see part of that as well. Very interesting. And by the way, if you like your fish and chips, 
Whitby is the place. They are excellent. So hopefully this was an interesting time to, to uh, talk about. And next time I will tell you about my trip to Blackpool to see the lights. Thank you. Bye. And now, very popular, Stephanie of the Monday Club. She's eager to tell you about her holiday. To the seaside, didn't you? What was that like? To the seaside. To Swanage. So what do you do in Swanage? Swim in the sea. Did you? Oh, wonderful. That's Swim what... in the sea. That's what we had. Yes? Ice cream. Oh, you had ice cream. Fantastic. And we had lunch as well. Wow. So what was the weather like? It was um, it was raining one day and and it was quite good. It was quite good and and we had um and we had a stop to a service station as well. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, it was quite good. Thank you, Stephanie. And now Tina, also of the Monday Club, tells you about her holiday with Licky Grange School, Bromsgrove. We went for a weekend in Wales somewhere, went camping, and it was Miss Shalika this time, that they, they that used to run the house. Oh, so that's what we did, we had a weekend there, a camping weekend. Thank you, Tina, and we'll hear Mark's report on his holiday next week, and now a bit of culture. The title of Julia's report reminds me of a book by John Steinbeck. I've never read it, but it's of mice and men. It's entitled Of Cake and Bingo. I took Wendy the Warden to Bingo at the Gateway Club last week. She was my eyes and I was her gob. (laughs) We didn't win the first game, but that was just a practice. Then we had a hot dog and a cup of tea with onions. Actually, the onions went with a hot dog rather than the cup of tea. Then we played another game of bingo and I won two aguillion pounds. I was going to share it with Wendy the Warden. But instead, I just said, April Fool, because I didn't really win it. But my friend John was 507 years old on Thursday and I made him my best ever coconut cake, which she really did. And he has been nagging me about making him one since before the millennium. We thought he would stuff it all in his mouth at once and stop talking rubbish for a few minutes. I gave him a card with a picture of a bottle of Jack Daniels on it. I would have given him a real bottle, but he would only get drunk and get arrested again, Julia. Thank you, Julia. I, I had to record that again. I was really cracking up. Uh, which is really good for me to have a laugh today. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Julia, and yourself for a lovely, varied postbag this week. And last week you heard from Explorer Mark Wood speaking to you from the Himalayas within sight of Mount Everest. How exciting was that? Along with my global friends in America and Barbados, it only happens in postbank. Do you find it exciting as well to hear from someone in a far-off land? Okay, right, well, thank you very much indeed for your postbank contributions this week. And that was absolutely fantastic. And Mark, 
He'll be coming to the Monday Club on Monday, the 21st of November, at 10.30am, to tell you about his latest adventures. The Monday Club meets between 10am and 12 noon. You are very welcome to come along. And there's tea and biscuits. Thank you very much. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks to Dave there, as always, with your postbag. Our first article is about the Flying Standard Building in Trinity Street, designed in the 1930s in Tudor style so as to match the Lichgate cottages behind it. It's described here by Margaret. The Flying Standard Building, which started in 1938, was originally called the Priory Gate, taken from the fact that it stands on the site of the original Priory Gate. It was built to reflect nearby Lichgate cottages. It has a still girder frame, but much of the building is English oak. It is covered with ornamental woodwork and barge boards, spiral and diamond chimneys created from handmade bricks. Few rooms are square and the walls join at acute or obtuse angles. This came from the peculiar shape of the site and the need for economy of space. There is a balcony with balustrades and carved camber beams above the balcony and the diamond pane glass was made in the Tudor style. The French woodcarver Louis Havard and his son were employed by the contractor W.H. Jones and Son to carve the barge boards, banister rails and doors. Charles Lofthouse of Litchfield created the oak finials that ornament the building. The Tudor-style barge boards were Louis Harvard's own design and based on those at Windsor Castle. The building was constructed to accommodate five retail units with ground first and second floors. In September 1939, Timothy White's The Chemist occupied much of the right-hand ground floor and part of the first floor. In December 1939, Noel Fashions of Richmond moved in, selling exclusive made-to-measure designs. By June 1941, H. Samuel the jeweller moved in. After the war, Owen Owen, bombed out of their store, found some refuge here taking three floors. They sold corsets, two soft furnishing and had a library. At Christmas, toys were sold in the toy cave on the second floor. Owen Owen moved out and the store continued under Timothy White's Samuels and later a wimpy bar. The entire building is now part of the popular Weatherspoon pub chain. Historically, the flying standard has nothing to do with standard motors, and so it should have been called the Prior Gate, since many kings have walked through the middle of this building. Henry IV, Henry V, Edward IV, Henry VI, Richard III, Henry VII and Henry VIII, to name quite a few. Can any other pub compete with this? Well, yes, I well remember Timothy White's The Chemist, but not the other shops mentioned. 
and yes, I am acquainted with the Weatherspoons pub that inhabits the building now. Wouldn't it be good if it was named the Priory Gate? Though I suppose it might get confused with the nearby Priory Row. Our next piece, read by Bill, is about that prolific author, Agatha Christie, whose popularity has never waned over the years. This is part one of her story. As a little bookworm, I used to check out one of Agatha Christie's novels from the library as a treat at the start of every school holiday. During my childhood, I must have hoovered up dozens and dozens of her books, thinking them undemanding fun. Sunday evenings were all about David Suchet as Poirot on the television, Hugh Fraser as his lovely, slightly gormless sidekick, Captain Hastings. It was a wonderful entertainment, like the books themselves, incredibly comforting. But no matter how horrible the crime, Christie's stories guaranteed a neatly wrapped package of resolution at the end. Happy days. Of course, as I grew up, I realised that the Dean of Crime stories were far more than simple entertainment, but they excelled at that. They also capture how society changed, especially for women, over the course of a turbulent 20th century, something I hope I reflect in my new biography of history's best-selling novelist. Before I started my research, I hadn't appreciated quite what a long life Agatha Christie lived. Born in Victorian England in September 1890, by the time she died in January 1976, aged 85, she was a global celebrity alongside people like the Rolling Stones. But despite her unimaginable success, there had always been something about Christie that had seen her placed in a box marked Difficult Women. Indeed, as I began my journey into the treasure trove of her private letters and notebooks that survive in her family's care, I confess I was a little worried. Perhaps Agatha Christie was too successful, a little too super-talented, warm to. I began to change my mind as I increasingly got to know her through her correspondence. While in person she was quiet and shy, and could perhaps be misconstrued as standoffish, on paper, he was chatty and vulnerable. He was born the youngest of three children, parents of substance in Torquay, then an elegant seaside resort where her wealthy family enjoyed a privileged life in their villa, Ashfield. But their financial situation worsened, and at eleven, Agatha lost her father Frederick to pneumonia and kidney disease. It was the end of her childhood, she began to suffer from terrifying nightmares that would come to inform her fiction. Christie would dream she was playing with her now widowed mother, Clara, or having tea with her, as normal. Then she would look up into her mother's face, only to find she had suddenly and mysteriously turned into a stranger. Mummy had become a man with steely blue eyes and a missing hand. She later described this fearful fantasy in a semi-autobiographical novel, Unfinished Portrait, in 1934. From the sleeve of her mother's dress came a horror, a horrible stump. It wasn't mummy, it was gunman. This gunman, with the name Christie gave her nightmare, 
and aspects of the character would become a central theme in her work. Nearly all her books feature an outwardly nice, respectable, friendly person who suddenly switches to the opposite of those, someone capable of murder. A young woman like Agatha was expected to marry money. When the First World War broke out in 1914, then 23-year-old quickly volunteered as a nurse. It was another experience that would inform her fiction. In her second book, The Secret Adversary, published in January 1922, introducing her young mystery solvers Tommy and Tuppence, its heroine, Tuppence, starts hospital life by washing up 649 plates a day, progresses to waiting on tables in the canteen, and graduates sweeping an actual ward. Christie herself had a similar experience, but she was eventually promoted to the hospital dispensary, doing the responsible job of mix mixing medicines. This inspired one of my favourite Christie characters, auburn-haired Cynthia, who entices Hastings into her dispensary in his first novel, and Hercule Poirot's first case, The Mysterious Affair at Stiles. By now, Christie was a wife and mother. She'd married a war hero, Archie Christie, and given birth to their daughter, Rosalind, in 1919. And, at 30, he had become a published and soon-to-be best-selling author. She'd written novels for fun since childhood, Styles was the first to get published, and even that was quite a slow process. Extraordinarily, in its subsequent success, it was four years before a publisher picked it up. She now produced in quick succession a series of novels that captured a roaring decade. Christie was a bit too old to be a flapper, but she shared some flapper values. She was a good dancer, and she was into sport. She swam. Once, she even travelled to Hawaii to go surfing. She loved fast cars. Nothing, she said, ever gave her more joy than her dear little bottle-nosed Morris Crowley. Some of my favourite early characters reflect the young, confident, beautiful Christie. Dulcie in Murder on the Links, in her rakish little red hat, and her lips quite impossibly scarlet. So next time, more about the Queen of Crime, who tried to kill off Detective Poirot, but was dissuaded by her public. King Charles III. It still sounds strange, doesn't it? When he was Prince of Wales, he was instrumental in preserving the art of cheese-making in this country, at a time when it seemed to be in decline. Here is Sheila to explain. King Charles III is famous for his support of environmental and social causes over the years, but did you know he played a decisive role in the renaissance of traditional artisan cheese in the UK? It is a perfect example of the way he has used his position to help support the issues he cares about. It may also hint at what a modern Karelian monarchy could look like. The story begins back in the early 1990s, when a series of food scares had shaken confidence in British food. A raft of new hygiene rules designed for industrial cheesemakers was being applied to dairies producing farmhouse cheeses, including a potential ban on the use of unpasteurised milk. 
Across the country, artisan cheesemakers were teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Randolph Hodgson was worried, as he had spent the previous decade attempting to revive British cheesemaking by promoting the best product through his cheese shop in London's Covent Garden. I really believed it would be the end of the great tradition of cheesemaking in the UK once and for all, he says. Mr Hodgson had set up the Specialist Cheesemakers Association to lobby for the interests of artisan producers, and the association's work had caught the attention of the then Prince of Wales. Cheese is only as good as the milk that goes into it, and the Prince was keen to support the high welfare and environmental standards on dairy farms producing artisan cheese. He was also interested in preserving traditional British farming and food production skills. He had become a patron of the SCA in 1993, and he got wind of the troubles the industry was facing. His response was typical of his approach to problems, say former advisers. He decided to convene a meeting over lunch at Highgrove, his residence in Gloucestershire. Charles invited cheesemakers and cheesemongers to his country pal, along with civil servants from the Ministry of Agriculture and government ministers. Mr Hodgson remembers the 1999 meeting well. Do you think it is important to keep these cheeses and traditions going? Charles asked. Everyone agreed it was. So what are you going to do about it was his next question for the room. The meeting ended with the civil servants agreeing to work with the cheesemakers to draw up a code of practice to ensure good hygiene in small dairies. It was, Mr Hodgson said, an incredibly important moment in the history of British cheese. He wasn't seeking attention for his support, he just brought everyone together and found a path through it all, he remembers. His intervention worked, says Tim Rowcliffe, a former chairman of the Specialist Cheesemakers Association. From that day on, we had a dialogue worth authority rather than going to war, he says, and the industry has thrived. Up on the hills of West Wales, I met Patrick Holden and his wife Becky, who make a cheddar-style cheese called Hafford, using unpasteurised milk from their 75 Ayrshire cows. Patrick says his farm was saved by the efforts of King Charles. He saw the need for farmers to add value to their milk, explains Patrick who says his farm was only viable because he can treble the value of his milk by turning it into artisan cheese. Patrick is not alone. There are now more than 700 different British and Irish farmhouse cheeses on the market. Probably more than the French, dare I say, laughs Mr Radcliffe. Artisan cheese has become a multi-million pound a year industry supporting hundreds of small farms, thousands of jobs, and which now exports British cheese all over the world. The King has quietly helped drive forward all sorts of other causes by convening meetings, building bridges and just getting people talking together. The rules have changed, of course. Now he is King, Charles must remain politically neutral, but it is unclear if that will prevent him championing the causes he cares about. He is planning a low-carbon coronation, for example, Royal sources have confirmed to the BBC that deciding who will attend will be a balancing act between sticking to royal protocol and keeping the carbon footprint down. Buckingham Palace may tell Commonwealth leaders they do not need to attend to reduce the number of aircraft flying to London, for example. 
The king is also expected to use a state visit to France next month, the first of his reign, to highlight his scheme to plant millions of trees in Africa. 700 different cheeses, that's just amazing. We move on now to hear from Sue about TV gardener and novelist, and apparently heartthrob for some, Alan Titchmarsh. He is perhaps the most unlikely of guilty crushes. But speaking to Alan Titchmarsh over Zoom from his writing loft in Hampshire, there is something about him. Not only is he intelligent, friendly, often asking me questions, even though he is meant to be the interviewee, and humble, but he's also incredibly talented at what he does. It's the reason why he's been labelled the digging woman's crumpet. Not to mention his Madame Tussauds statue, once so popular with fans it had to be cleaned twice a week to remove the lipstick marks. However, Titchmarsh, 73, is quick to laugh off such attention. I'll take it, but it's absurd, he says. I don't think my wife would agree. Many of his more adult fans arose from his unexpected foray into romance novels, the first of which follows a gardener hired to recapture the declining audience of a daytime gardening programme before quickly becoming Britain's latest heartthrob. Sound familiar? Titchmarsh has now penned 11 fiction books which have garnered a huge amount of attention from middle-aged women and have caused quite the stir on net mums for their saucy content. The novels aren't that saucy, bursts Titchmarsh, who lives with his wife Alison. You know, I was astonished when I started writing fiction and it came out as romance. I always thought I'd maybe be a crime writer, but they are difficult to plot. I feel terrible if people are picking up my books because they think they're going to be incredibly racy. They'll be a bit disappointed. They're no Fifty Shades of Grey... More like fifty sheds of grey, I guess. The first one or two were a bit more steamy, but the later ones have toned down a bit, mainly because I'm getting older. I also had my comeuppance during the recordings for the audio book. I had to sit in a room on my own with a sheet of glass between me and a very large bearded man and read out some of the more heated lines. I was mortified. Despite his passion for writing, gardening remains Titchmarsh's first love. The broadcaster has been on our screens for more than 40 years, when he appeared as the horticultural expert on long-running BBC show Nationwide. His easy manner and passion for gardening went on to land him presenting jobs for the Chelsea Flower Show as well as Ground Force and Gardener's World. With 7 million Britons taking up gardening since the pandemic, the green-fingered pastime has become as cool as baking. And Titchmarsh couldn't be more thrilled. It's music to my ears, he says. I've spent my life trying to get people to be at ease in the garden. I started gardening when I was eight, and I started doing it for a living when I was 15. But I was very odd. Not many people were all that interested in it. Not like they are today. I think many of us have realised how wonderfully sustaining it can be. 
I hope it sticks because gardening really is such soul food which we all need from time to time. Titchmarsh's penchant for gardening is the inspiration behind his latest book, The Gardener's Almanac, a treasury of wisdom and inspiration through the year. A surprisingly personal book, it details month-by-month gardening tips, as well as music, poetry and books Titchmarsh enjoys through each season. And it's clearly a project close to the gardener's heart. Even the illustrations were done by him. But despite the new release, it's Titchmarsh's 40-year friendship with King Charles that has made headlines of late. The gardener enjoyed dinner, a glass of fizz and a natter with the then prince at Dumfries House in Scotland back in September. Unbeknownst to both of them, it would be King Charles's last day as the Prince of Wales before the Queen passed away the following day. It was strange on reflection being with him the night before, adds Titchmarsh. The next day he shot off and he was king. It was just remarkable. I shall never forget it. Being so close to the new king, does Titchmarsh think his friend will make a good monarch? I'm always a bit wary when people say, you know, you're very, very good friends with Charles, admits Titchmarsh, with his usual unassuming manner. We've known each other for a long time, but I'm not part of the inner circle or anything like that. We see one another now and then, and we get on very well. Saying that, I think he's handled himself brilliantly since the accession. He'll be a good king because he works harder than anybody I know. He's got such a love and a passion for his country and its people, of all faiths and ethnic origins. He's a good man, and a man who cares deeply about the things that need to be cared about. He's taken a lot of flack over the years, often for things which in the fullness of time have proved to be worth standing up for. He just needs to be given a chance. One of the subjects both the King and Titchmarsh are passionate about is climate change. I think it's wise to be aware of the change in our climate, but we must remember to differentiate between climate and weather, explains Titchmarsh. It's almost as if weather has disappeared and climate seems to be on the incline, but there will be peaks and troughs either side of that. It always fluctuates, and we had a hot summer, but I wouldn't advocate chopping down trees and planting date palms. There's a temptation to knee-jerk, but I think we're better off being aware that things might change. Our flora may well change, but we will have to see what and when. You know, the Romans were growing grapes up in Yorkshire when they were here. I'm in no way a climate change denier. I do think the climate is changing, but we have to be very careful not to exacerbate things. Between the Ice Ages, there were tropical periods, and we weren't here, we didn't exist. Things appear to be happening much more quickly. And I'm all for everything being much more environmentally friendly, particularly with industry, but we need to take a measured and balanced view going into the future. As for Titchmarsh's future, has he got any plans to enjoy the life of a retiree? Not yet, not yet, he laughs. I like being stimulated. I've just been planting crocuses in the garden, so I know I'll have those to look forward to in spring. I love working on my TV shows. 
and disappearing in my garden or in my writing. I like to be busy. I made slow gin this year too, and I enjoy growing vegetables that we can use at home. I grow, my wife cooks, and we both eat together. Is that the secret to his 57-year marriage? Yes, Jack Spratt, remember that? Alan Titchmarsh tells a tale about meeting the Queen and her remarking that he made a lot of ladies very happy. And now Nigel, who's been doing a serious scientific study, The Good Dunking Guide. Britain is rich in naval traditions, and not all are fit for discussion in a respectable newspaper. But dunking is. This great British recreation has its roots afloat in the 17th century, when naval rations largely comprised of horrible dry biscuits known as hardtack, so unappetising that the only way sailors could eat them with any pleasure whatsoever was by soaking them in beer. Later, when tea was introduced first into the courtly salons than the ordinary homes of England, the practice was repeated with this new and exotic hot drink. Thus was born dunking, that sensual coming together of our two great national comforters, tea and biscuits. Dunking was still viewed as rather common until Queen Victoria admitted to enjoying the practice. After that it swept through the drawing rooms of polite society and thence outwards to the world where it spawned many a national and regional variation. Coffee lovers in the Low Countries bound a stropful vassal biscuit on their steaming cups to melt a little before dunking, the resultant gloriousness being enjoyed from Antwerp to Amsterdam. Down under, ginger nuts are the ubiquitous dunk for good reasons our research reveals. Talents as different as Marcel Proust and Peter Kay have celebrated the dunk. The former went into such a reverie after soaking his muslin cake in a cuppa that he wrote the whole seven volumes of A la Richesse du Temps Perdu. Bolton comic Peter has a hilarious routine in which biscuits vie to emerge to the toughest. And in coming together of two national treasures, Dame Judy Dench explains dunking in the best Marigold Hotel movie as lowering the biscuit into the tea and letting it soak in there and trying to calculate the exact moment before the biscuit dissolves when you whip it up into your mouth and enjoy the blissful union of biscuits and tea combined. Here then are the results of our unscientific but enthusiastic survey into which biscuits give the perfect dunk. Firstly, the ginger nut. A three or four second dip brings a yielding softness, but the sweet mushiness is undercut by the peppery bite of the ginger. A superb juxtaposition. Verdict, perhaps the perfect dunk. Shortbread finger. A sturdy finger which requires the longest emotion time of any of our sample, seven or eight seconds at least. This gives a thick and buttery mouthful that still maintains a pleasing shape and solidity with very little risk of collapse. Verdict, classic. Rich tea. Dunking brings out deep bottom notes of milkiness in the biscuit, but anything more than a few seconds immersion risks total collapse and biscuit lost in tea requires nerve and timing. Verdict, 
a precarious, silky delight. Chocolate digestive. Regarded by some as the sine qua non of dunking biscuits, this is a classic drink. Dunk. A thicker base needs a good five seconds of immersion, which will transform the chocolate coating to a runny liquid. Verdict. Messy, but delicious. Garibaldi. A rightly revered biscuit, but perhaps too hard and non-porous to benefit from dunking. A 10-second immersion softens the biscuit, but obscures the sweet f- fruit sweetness of the currants. Slightly problematic. Verdict? One for the maverick. Malted milk. Contrary to expectation, surprisingly resilient, yet deliciously light to the bite can take a couple of brief dunkings or one longish one while still maintaining its structural integrity and full colour. Verdict? Excellent. And finally, the bourbon. A left-field triumph and a brilliant choice for the chocoholic. Reversing the digestive structure means the melting chocolate stays within the rich soft cakiness of the biscuit. A voluptuously rich melding. Verdict? Heavenly. I'm a dedicated dunker myself and usually manage okay, but admitted defeat with a chocolate ginger biscuit. The chocolate melted all over me and the ginger part remained hard as rock. Lastly, we have part two of Dave's interview with Karen Bucknell, winner of beauty pageants for charities, cover girl and model. Oh, and now you've become, for want of a better expression, it's a bit old-fashioned expression, isn't it? you become a beauty queen. Whoa, <laughs> you can't say beauty queen. That no, is so, like, unpolitically correct. It's a bit like Miss oh. World, is it? <laughs> yes. It's what do they call it these days? Oh, um, to be honest, um, they're called empowerment pageants. Yes. But in all fairness, people get the beauty and it's pretty common for people to say to me, oh, which beauty contest you're doing this month? Well. Um, yeah. <laughs> well. There's probably about six, six or seven a year that I do, all spaced out. All right, so you've been uh, reached the final of Miss Voluptuous just lately, haven't you? Yeah, um, I did it a couple of months ago, and I'm now going back for my second season. So what's um, Yeah, I'm now in my... Uh, the pageant year runs basically sort of July to July, so I've done the 2022. I'm now a finalist 2023, mm-hmm. and I represent Gloucestershire where I now live. Yeah. Been living down in Gloucestershire two and a half years now. Yeah, great. These uh, these uh, pageants are quite inspiring because you're a colostomy bag wearer, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of pageants, uh, charity ones, and mainstream. And um, they're, they're very much. It doesn't matter what hidden disability or disability you have. Um, they, they very much want you to go ahead, apply and enter. But I am, in all fairness, the first post, because I had cancer a few years ago, I am the first post 
advanced bowel cancer, colostomy bag wearer, benign brain tumour, post-hysterectomy, hypertension, I get really bad high, pre um, high blood pressure, um, beauty pageant, yes. <laughs> finalist, empowerment wow. pageant finalist, um, not only in the UK but actually in the world, I'm the first ever in the world to do it. Wonderful, and you also... I get a lot of media attention, yes. and I get every charity and every pageant under the sun wanting me to to represent them, but I have to be quite choosy and say, no, I'm only doing six or seven pageants a year, and every year I work with maybe four or five charities. Great, and you also miss Magical Smile, aren't you? Oh, there's loads of them. Oh, God. You know, people count sheep trying to, you know, get to sleep. I count the pageants I'm in and which <laughs> region I'm representing. Um, currently, yeah. at the moment, Miss Voluptuous Gloucestershire, my second season with uh, the Warrior Charity hmm. Pageant, and that's representing Cornwall. Um, because they have no one representing Cornwall, and my um, my ancestors are from Cornwall, so it gives me a good excuse to visit Cornwall as and when I can. Miss Magical mm. Smile, yep, representing Cheltenham and the Cotswolds. Um, well, wonderful. <laughs> you, you... Oh, uh, Miss uh, Scarlet Heart. Scarlet Heart, wonderful. Yes, yeah, Scarlet Heart, yeah. um, representing Cheltenham and the Cotswolds. Yes. Um, buh, buh, buh. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and um, I, I won yeah. the Princess of Hearts. Princess and that's, of Hearts. Um, working with the British Heart Foundation. Lots to do with hearts, isn't there? Yeah. It's, it's a lot of things, and I've got hypertension. My mum's in hospital with uh, heart failure. Uh, I, I seem to be sorry about better, that. better though, but yeah, it's a bit of a heart thing going yes, on. Yes, yeah, there is, yeah. And you, you're a cover girl, aren't you, of one magazine? Oh, I've been, oh, this sounds really big-headed, but it's, to be honest, it all seems a bit of a dream sometimes, but I've been in a few magazines, and I've just started yeah. doing a little bit of plus-size modelling. Oh, good, good, e excellent. And I've just heard, um, I've just come back from one modelling assignment, and next year in January, they want me to do um, modelling gym wear, because I've just gone back to the gym. Cool, well, great. And sort of, okay... Um, after your cancer and your heart, yeah. heart and, you know, your blood pressure's okay, yeah. you can go to the gym. Right. But, yeah, it's all it's all happening. It seems a bit of a dream. It, it yeah. seems like I'm leading Barbie's best life, you know, Barbie the doll. Well, thank you there to Cowan Bucknell for speaking to us. And she's also the Godiva Sister of Hope, by the way. And she also gave a talk at the council house on International Women's Day. So thank you very much, Karen. You're a very inspiring woman. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. An inspiring story indeed, with which to end this edition of Outlook, brought to you this week by me, Stella Roberts, with engineering by John Bennett. Outlook will be back next week, 